Hello, and thanks for listening to the Geek to English podcast. This podcast is brought to you by SiteGround. SiteGround is known for its quality web hosting services. Learn more about them at SiteGround.com. Welcome to the Geek to English podcast. Each week on the Geek to English podcast, we are going to discuss a different technical topic in plain old English. No unexplained technical terms, no insider jargon, no developer speak. We take the technical and make it easy to understand. We translate geek to English. It is said for programmers that the three hardest problems to solve are cache invalidation and off-by-one errors. Think about that. It'll hit you about halfway through this episode. Caching parts of your website sounds easy, but, but it's really not. First, a definition. To cache something is to store it for fast retrieval. We cache entire web pages because it takes a while to assemble them. Serving a copy of it stored in cache is much quicker. In caching, there are really three main things that we cache. First is the full page cache. Now, when we talk about a full page cache, it's just what it sounds like. Unless you're running a totally static website, each page your web server serves has to be generated. A program is run on the server, and the output of that program is seen in the browser. Some web pages are fast because they contain only a little bit of dynamic data. However, the more dynamic data your web page contains, the longer it will take to render it. Thus, when you are serving the exact same page to everyone, regardless of who they are, it makes sense to store a copy of that web page in memory and deliver it instead of regenerating it each time. This is a full page cache. It's a copy of your web page stored in your server's memory. Now, if full page caching is so great, why not cache every page like this? Well, when someone logs into your website, if you cache that page and serve it to other people, it might contain that person's personal information. Full page caching is tricky. So like everything in computers, you only use it when it makes sense. Another popular thing to cache, okay, popular with programmers, is the results from a database query. You probably know that almost all dynamically generated websites have a database behind them storing data for quick and easy retrieval. Sometimes, though, quick is a relative term. On large databases, it may take seconds to retrieve the data that you need to display on that page. This means that your page is delayed by those seconds. So, for those queries, we cache the results. Now, most modern database servers handle this for us automatically. Programmers and database administrators configure the database server to notice that they've already made this query once and have the results handy and serve those results instead of fetching them all over again. This can mean the difference between seconds and microseconds, depending on the query. Again, though, you have to use caution. If you try to cache everything, you just end up filling your database's memory the things you're really only going to use once in a while. And this prevents it from caching the important results. On most hosting plans that are not shared hosting, your web host should either expose an interface to your developer to allow them to configure your database's cache, or they've tuned it for you already. 
SiteGround has been providing web hosting solutions for 15 years and has become known for its fast platform, top-notch security, and exceptional customer service. If you've been sitting on a great idea for a personal site, a blog, or an online shop, SiteGround will help you get it started smoothly. If you're a professional building and managing multiple client sites, SiteGround offers a powerful set of tools for collaboration and easy management that will save you work and yet give you plenty of control. Enjoy essential must-haves included for free in all of their plans, like Let's Encrypt SSL, email accounts, CDN, automated daily backups, and so much more. Check them out today at SiteGround.com. The third thing that we cache is any data that is expensive to generate or retrieve. There is other data that is expensive to retrieve other than SQL results. Many calls to outside APIs can slow your site down. Now, back in the early days, Twitter had a great API that was open to everyone. But because Twitter was having stability issues, it was difficult to use that API in production. If Twitter were down, your entire site would take seconds to load or simply fail altogether. Now, Twitter has fixed its stability issues for the most part, but the lessons we learned stick with us. If your website lists a display of, say, the last five tweets you tweeted out from your company's account, and you don't tweet more than five or ten times a day, there's no reason to keep asking Twitter, can I have that list, each time somebody loads a page. This is expensive data that can be cached. Now, how often you go back to Twitter to see if the list has changed? Well, that's up to you. So, those are the things that we normally cache. Now let's talk a little bit about where we store cached data. Originally, the most common place to store cached data was on your web server's file system. Developers would write data out to a file and read it back in instead of querying the source. This is moderately faster than some systems, but as things have gotten faster, we've learned that the file system is probably the slowest part of any web system. So it's not a great place to cache things. Sometimes developers cache information in cookies. Cookies are those little small pieces of information that are stored in the browser. Cookies are a convenient place to store data because it's already on the client's computer. It's not on your server. So you can store personal information. Cookies, however, have their drawbacks. We do not want to store sensitive information in cookies because they can be read by just about any website out there. If you're not careful, you can leak login credentials or personally identifying information to sites that should not have access to that information. The next class of storage is what we call a key value pair. Key-value pair servers literally store a piece of information in their system and associate that piece of information with a key. The key is how the web server retrieves that information. The information itself is called the value. A popular key-value storage system is called Redis. Redis is not terribly difficult to set up, and good web hosts offer it to you as an option, either free or paid. In the case of WordPress, if you have Redis installed and properly configured, then WordPress can store what it calls transients automatically. Now, transients are pieces of information that WordPress caches temporarily. Transients aren't meant to live long term, 
But in the short term, having them stored in Redis is much faster than having to retrieve them from the database. Many plugins use transients in WordPress. So having a key value store can have a significant impact on the speed of your pages. So if caching is so great, why not cache all the things? Well, like we talked about in full page caching, you have to be careful what you cache. You don't want someone's personal information to be cached in a page and then served to everyone. More than that though, if you cache things for a long time, then you run the risk of that data getting stale. Now stale is what we call data that we are still serving from a cache, even though it's outdated. For example, if you are caching the results of a baseball game and somebody hits a home run, but you're still serving the old score, that data is stale. To prevent the problem of stale data, programmers create convoluted schemes to invalidate a cache. Now, invalidating a cache tells the computer to ignore it and fetch the fresh data. Many caches are invalidated simply on the basis of time. For instance, invalidate a cache after two minutes. This means that after you fetch the data for the next two minutes, you serve that data from the cache and not go back and get the real data. At two minutes and one second, the program knows to fetch fresh data and cache that. Now, the above example is not ideal in many cases, but for data that's not time sensitive, it's a good compromise. Other times, cache invalidation is triggered by an external event. For instance, if your homepage is just a list of the posts on your blog, there's really no reason to ever invalidate the cache until you write a new post. So instead of a time-based invalidation scheme, we would use a trigger to invalidate the cache of your homepage. That trigger would be a new post being published. At that point, it's time to rebuild the cache. How? when and what triggers cache invalidation is a very important thing to think through for each piece of data you cache. So there you have it. As with most things in a modern website, you will probably want to hire a developer to help you implement caching on your website. They probably won't have to write any code at all, but they will be able to help you navigate the minefield of options, buzzwords, and to use the proper tools to squeeze the most performance out of your website. Trust me, it will be cash well spent. <laughs> I'll see myself out. Hey, thanks for listening to the Geek to English podcast. Do me a favor. If you like this episode, find us on your favorite podcasting network and leave us a rating. If there's something we can do better, or if there's a topic you'd love us to cover, drop me an email at cal at geek2englishpodcast.com. 